Fernanda Herrera-Vera is a Loyola Law student and a DACA recipient. She's going to join me and Jim today to talk about her experience, her family's experience, and what she sees is coming next. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Fernanda Herrera-Vera, and I went to college in Birmingham, Alabama at Samford University, um, nearby where I grew up, and I am a 2L here at Loyola, and I'm excited to be talking to you guys today. Well, we're really excited to have you, Fernanda. So um, just jumping right in, tell us a little bit about you and your background, your family, and growing up in Birmingham. Yeah, so I was born in Mexico, and when I was about two and a half, my family and I moved to Alabama. We were following my uncle, who had started a restaurant business in Gunnersville, Alabama. We moved there originally, then moved to Gadsden, moved to Florida for a little bit, and then moved back up to Gadsden. And that's where I went to high school and everything. Um, My little brother was born when I was about seven years old, and he was was born in the U.S., so kind of makes us a mixed-status family, which means that... My parents are undocumented, I have DACA, and my little brother is a U.S. citizen. So all three statuses, um, there are actually other statuses too, but so I want to be inclusive of that. You know, there's TPS there, which is a temporary protected status, Um, and then there are asylees. So I just, I want to make sure that I'm not saying these are all the statuses. (laughs) No, I definitely appreciate that. So, um, you know, we really want to focus on you and your story. So tell us a little bit about what it, what it is to be a DACA American and what your day-to-day looks like as a DACA recipient. Growing up, I didn't really understand um, the implications of being undocumented. Um, I remember just knowing that I was different from my classmates, but I didn't know if that was because I was Mexican or if that was because I was undocumented or because we were, like, lower. We, like, just didn't make that much money. And I went to like a private school, so I didn't know I didn't know like what the differences were. I knew that my parents had to work a lot, and I knew that they couldn't chaperone school trips because they didn't have driver's licenses, so they couldn't put that down. I remember when I was in high school, when it came time to applying for a permit with um, my drivers, my driver's ed class, I I just knew that I couldn't do it, and I didn't really ask why. I just knew that that wasn't a possibility. And so when DACA was announced in 2012, my family was in deportation proceedings. So it worked out really well because it was right before I had to apply for college. And then DACA like took me out of my parents' deportation case. So it protected me. And so I had to miss my first day of class in college to go with my parents to court to find out if they were going to be deported. And so that was rough. (laughs) Um, but I was excited to, to be going to college. I mean, I honestly, I hadn't even started classes yet and I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep, to even go because like, how could I afford it without my parents working to put me through it? And then who would have to raise my brother? That was difficult. And then I didn't tell anyone I was undocumented besides maybe some of my professors who had to know because I was missing class. 
um, until sophomore year of college when there was a trip to Italy as part of our scholarship. The trip was included in our scholarship, so it was all expenses paid in Rome and Venice, or no, not Venice, Florence. Florence. And my classmates were like, well, why aren't you going? Like, why, why aren't you planning this with us? Because we had um, a break where we could all travel together. And I told them, well, like, I can't afford it. And they were like, okay, but it's free. I was like, okay, all right, you got me. <laughs> so I told them, I was like, well, I just, I don't, I can't leave the country because if I leave, I can't come back. And even though advanced parole was a thing then, um, which is you had to apply to get a permit to leave the country, but it had to be for um, humanitarian, educational, or employment reasons, um, which is now non-existent because when, doc- when DACA was rescinded, this was rescinded along with it in September of 2017. So, you know, I had to, I had to tell them because I was just tired of, like, lying and just one lie just leads to another, it leads to another. And it was just exhausting. Like, I felt like I was already living a double life, um, having to keep up. I mean, I didn't have a car, which was pretty necessary in Birmingham. There's no, like, public transport. My parents, they had a business, but they had um, closed down their business because of HB 56 in 2011, which was a very harsh anti-immigrant law. And so a lot of people were fleeing Alabama, going back to their home countries or going to different parts of the country. And most of our clientele was Hispanic. So our business basically died, and my dad worked at a chicken plant right before I started college. And he was working like 80 hour weeks to put me through college for a few months until they were able to start up a new restaurant. And so like I knew money was tight. It was just really hard. I felt like I was living a double life and I couldn't explain to my classmates like what was going on and I just didn't really want to. Um, just similar to what's happening now in law school. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. You, so you, first of all, you've obviously come so far um, and been through so much, but there, you, you mentioned a few things. Um, you know, first and foremost, this double life thing. Yeah. Obviously, from your perspective, that's been defining. Tell me a little bit about how you think the average Mexican American, whether they be documented or undocumented, feels um, about that that double life sentiment that you expressed. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's more normalized now as the mainstream media is kind of picking up the like Latinx experience um again like I don't know if it's good or bad like it's become like this commercialized like packaged thing that you can just like buy you know like you can you can buy the Latino experience which is not true like it's not it doesn't come with the authenticity it doesn't come with the struggle of course like like when I think a celebrity just had like a day of the dead party for her kid the other day and I was just like okay you know you're celebrating the culture but, like, how authentic is that, you know? But I feel like as a, as a kid growing up, it would have been really cool to see, to see stuff like that celebrated, you know? But I think now, like, in the age of Trump, it's like, well, you're celebrating the culture, but you're completely just discarding the human lives behind the culture. You want to be celebrated, but you also don't want to be almost, like, fetishized, you know, without being acknowledged, like, as a person outside of the labor that, you know, Mexicans do for this country. Like, it's, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be celebrated just because we work hard. <laughs> like, it's not, you know? And I feel like that's what a lot of the story's about. 
Do you feel like there's been a substantial notable difference in that sort of fetishization in uh, Chicago setting compared to Alabama? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think I think big cities because they have they have more access to the community. I think it's it's a little bit I've seen a lot more, but I think it's also like it's more authentic in a way because it's the community leading it. So I don't know if you guys saw that in Pilsen. I don't know. Southside, they like shut down all the streets and they couldn't like ride the low riders on the day of Independence Day or the night before Independence Day, which is El Grito, September 15th. And so people rode their low riders like through downtown in front of Trump Tower, like just like flipping people off. And I was just like, well, that's cool. Like this is exactly like we don't organize. This isn't on a billboard somewhere. This isn't, you know, something that's on a banner. It's, it just happens. Like we get together, we do crazy things and we just like celebrate our like who we are, you know. So I, I want to, um, you know, this is a Loyola podcast. And so I would love for you to speak to what it's like being in your position and being at Loyola, whether or not you feel as though um, this community has really bolstered you. And then, you know, also in addition to that, uh, the class of 2022, there are now three DACA recipients. Um, and as far as I know, all three of those students are on full ride. So Talk to me a little bit about the the greater Chicago community, but of course, more specifically, the Loyola community. I mean, of course, it was a no-brainer. Like, I had offers from other places, but then, you know, like, a full ride in Chicago, you can't really turn it down. Like, it was kind of, like, fulfilling the dream that my parents, like, wanted me to, to have when I got here. This is literally the reason they risked their lives. Um, I mean, my dad, like, like, swam across a river to get me here so of course like it just kind of reemphasizes the fact that I'm doing this for a reason that's much bigger than me and so I mean I remember like driving down Chicago like downtown Chicago when I got here um, last August and like my parents were driving their car in front of me I was driving my car behind them and I was just like yeah like they're leading the way of course like they have to go first they have to see all these things before I even see them um, because like they're the reason I'm doing this. And so I feel like I can't, I mean, I can't speak for the others who are having this experience with me, but from the conversations I've had with some of them, like I, I know they feel, they feel similarly. Um, last year when my mom was detained, um, like the professors and the deans were all very, very kind and helpful. Um, when I had to take my exams elsewhere and I just kept postponing them like they understood you know they didn't want me to push myself any any harder than I already was I think it's important though to note that more can always be done like there wasn't like a rapid response team locked and loaded and I've actually talked to um so there's apparently like a I don't know how publicly I can talk about this but there's a group at the undergrad who gets together and talks about these issues. And there is, um, it's not public, like purposefully so. There is also um, like an overarching group of faculty and staff that like gets together and talks about this, but it's like they meet, I think they meet once a month for an hour. And I don't, I don't know that that's enough time to talk about how important this is for our day to day. Like I wish there were mental health resources that were like specifically for this and even nationwide like I've talked to friends and classmates like there's not anyone that's trained to deal with this 
and it's happening every single day. Like people are being separated daily from their families and there's not anyone who's just ready to respond to that. As someone who does try to have a certain amount of involvement in initiatives on this campus, like the kind of mindfulness movement that I know some people are restarting or community building circles, I find it important for myself and others to do our best to educate ourselves on what can we be doing better for people who are not like us and not to ask you to speak for a broader community or anything that's beyond the scope of what you feel appropriate to recommend to, but can you think of any particular advice that you could give me or give to our listeners about what we could do that might be useful to help provide those resources, whether that's through individual action or through petitioning for broader institutional change? It's easier to sit down and talk to someone who looks like you and who, is, who can just sit there and be like, yeah, I'm going through this too, you know? And, or not even I'm going through this, but I know exactly how this might feel, you know? And I think like in a moment when you're in crisis, you don't want to sit down and have to explain yourself. Like I went to the wellness center and like last year when I first got here and I spent like half of the session just talking about like having to explain what was going on. I was like, oh, well, this is because of this. And, you know, like therapy shouldn't be a podcast, like, (laughs) you know, Um, and so um, I don't know if if like some resources could be pulled together to bring someone who is like specific for this, you know, I don't know, like, I understand like paying for tuition, books and housing is like, it's amazing. It's great. But then like you're put somewhere far away from your family and you're like, okay, cool. Like, how do I do this? You know, Mm -hmm. what's going on? I actually met with, um, I think one of the first undocumented lawyers here in Chicago last year. And he advised me to not tell my employer that I was undocumented. Like when I started working, He's like, yeah, I don't do that. Like, it, I just don't tell them because then they'd have an excuse, an excuse to like fire me or like whatever. I'm like, come on, you're a lawyer. You know that's not legal. Like, they can't do that. Like, authenticity is really important. You know. Mm-hmm. So like, if you're not able to, like, I, I don't want to go back into the shadows. So like, I think like mentorship would be like really important. Um, I know I kind of just like went off the deep end from your question. But <laughs> I'd rather have good content than a specific answer to my question. Yeah. And I think this is really helpful. He yeah. also set you up for that a little bit. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think, I think the, the deans and the professors here like truly do care. And I think no matter what situation you're going through as a law student, you're, you're going to know that just because we know we have like good quality people here caring about us. I think it's just like a matter of like putting, putting their heads together and like listening to what people need, you know? Uh, Fernanda, you, you mentioned that you becoming a lawyer and, and pursuing this career and obviously you're well on your way to doing that. Um, that's a dream of your dad. And so, you know, I want to talk about the American dream sort of holistically because, you know, what you've said is your parents came from little. They've worked incredibly, incredibly hard to provide themselves and their children um, better opportunities than they had. And, you know, sort of from 10,000 feet, that's what the American dream is all about. Obviously, you'd be able to, to speak to that better than most, but I also want you to talk about, you know, what is, what's missing from your family specifically, but also from any immigrant family in achieving the American dream. What's, what's the bar that's stopping um, you and others from achieving that? 
think the, the answer is kind of just going to be like multifaceted because there's this knowledge that there is this like elusive American dream that you're just like perpetually working towards. And I think like our generation has just completely like shattered that notion. And I think, I think if you don't fit in like a very specific box, like the American dream just isn't made for you and you can like work tirelessly to achieve it. But the fact of the matter is that even if I reach the American dream, my parents literally never will. Like I am always, always, always going to feel guilty because my life over the last 10 years has changed so drastically. Like I've gone from living with them to going to college, kind of struggling, but doing better. And then like having a job, living alone, like in a city to like now living in Chicago, going to law school, not having to work 12, 14 hour days like I used to when I was in high school with them. And they have stayed in the exact same place. Maybe they got a new house, but it's kind of the same. They work the same hours. They get up, they wear the same clothes, do the same thing. But my life is the life that's improving. And like my quality of life is going to be better. Meanwhile, my parents can't even go to the doctor. They can, they can never have access to health insurance unless they become documented somehow. That's even if they're able to do that before they get deported. So the American dream is 100% flawed because there are people in this country who will never be able to attain it even if they work so hard to make sure that the generations after them do. I mean, I, there are days when I can't even call them because of how guilty I feel. I haven't talked to my dad in a month because I picture him working in a hot kitchen and then I look around and I'm like, wow, like, our lives are so different. I can't even communicate with you anymore because I'm going to feel guilty about it. You know, like I can, I can tell myself, I can trick myself into thinking, hey, you know, like I'm going to like work really hard and I'm going to make money and I'm going to buy them a house and everything's going to be good. But at the end of the day, like I can't make up for 20 years of their lives that they've spent, you know, working for me can't make up for like those two weeks that my mom like was in a cell like I just can't you know um and I know that like they did all that for me and my brother so I don't know and that's just that's just like me you know like I can't even I can't speak for the African-American community I can't speak for like the LGBTQ community for like survival survivors of like rape and assault like I just I can't there's clearly a lot of intersectionality at play here um and you said that so so perfectly. I mean, you you spoke so beautifully. I want you to, um, if you if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about you know you touched on your mom being in a cell for two weeks, um, and you know as your as a section mate, um, you know seeing you come to class every day, I, I know um, that that weighed heavy on you. So I'd love if you are comfortable to talk a little bit about that experience and um, how that's sort of translated into your day to day. Yeah, so I made a terrible mistake, and I decided to have foot surgery um, late March. <laughs> I thought it was a great idea to have elective surgery my first year of law school. That was really good. I remember the scooter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of you guys helped me carry my books. That was awesome. Um, so my mom came to take me to my surgery and to stay with me. This is the only time in my life that I can remember my mom not working for four days in a row and being with me by myself. So it was such a treat just to have my mom all to myself for four days without, like, anything to do. I mean, she was in my kitchen cooking for me, (laughs) but 
you know, that was, she was cooking for me, not for anyone else. <laughs> so, um, so she took me to the hospital. Then um, she stayed with me while I was like trying to recover, I guess. But like my foot was still like in stitches. And so she left and then she went to pick up my little brother from the airport in Atlanta. My brother was trying out for a professional soccer team in Mexico. He's actually playing pro right now in Mexico. Yeah, he's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I wish I was him. <laughs> um, but so she she went to pick him up from the airport in Atlanta. And she so neither of my parents have driver's licenses um, because in Alabama, if you're undocumented, you can't get a driver's license. Um, I think in Illinois you can and a few other states. But so they went to spend time with my aunt, and they never, ever go visit my aunt unless I am with them and I ask them to do that. So it was crazy because they stayed there so late. And then five minutes from, from my aunt's house, they get pulled over. They were driving my car, and it had a, the taillight, and it was a headlight. It wasn't even – it was still working. It just had it jiggled loose so to where the light wasn't working. So they got pulled over. I've actually seen the dash cam footage, um, and I saw, like, the strength that they used to – restrained my dad and my my little brother they were very nice too but my dad they just like pulled him really really hard um and you can like see him wincing in the dash cam footage he had bruises on his arms and stuff then they my parents had picked up produce from the from like a farmer's market for the restaurant and they had the car full of produce so the lady like completely ransacked their car just like shoved everything like moved all the produce and stuff and she was doing this for, like, a solid, like, hour, just, like, combing through everything. She pulled out some chocolate from my mom's purse and, like, was like, what is this? My brother was like, it's chocolate. Like, <laughs> just some baby powder in there. And she was, like, shaking it everywhere. And my brother was like, that's just baby powder. <laughs> so, that, I mean, they were looking for anything they could find to, you know, just, like, take my whole family, basically. Um, they asked my mom for her driver's license when they found out that she didn't have one. They took her out of the vehicle. And they put her in the cop car. So they took, they took her to Gwinnett County Jail, and then my uncle tried to go get her, but by that time, they'd already had an ice hold on her from her previous run-in. Um, and my dad called me at 5 a.m., and I just, like, I already knew. Like, just from seeing the name, like, my dad never calls me, much less at 5 a.m., so I was like, yeah, something's wrong. So apparently he had, um, this had all gone down at midnight, which was, like, my little brother's birthday. He's turning 17. He was, like, handcuffed as he turned 17. <laughs> um, and so my dad calls me, and he's like, hey, they, um, they got your mom. And I just, like, I was like, okay, all right, wh what do I do? What do you want me to do? And I, like, sprung up from my bed, and I'd completely forgotten about my foot, so, like, my stitch is kind of open, and it was just, like, bloody mess everywhere and like it was just ridiculous <laughs> so it's like okay all right one more um no so then I just started making phone calls I called my old boss got him to look her up called like five or six other people immediately just started alerting everyone trying to see like what I could do like kind of fashion my own like rapid response team and then I got dressed and I went to class <laughs> and I mean I just, I couldn't miss class because I had already missed the week before from my surgery. I mean, I was, you saw me, like I was in and out of class. Like I wasn't even sitting. I would go in, I would just kind of sit down for a second and then my phone would ring and I would leave. Um, so we, um, I think day two was when I finally was able to get like representation for her 
that I wanted to stay with because um, I, I did a lot of like activism work and stuff like in undergrad and afterwards. So I was able to like just use those resources and I talked to just a lot of friends that I had and one of the organizations I volunteered with, the executive director represented her on bond. So that was great. Um, and so then I got a flight home a few days after that to come like help my dad with all the paperwork and everything. While I was there, the health inspector came to the restaurant, so that was fun. <laughs> so I was, like, on crutches, like, running back to the kitchen. I was like, Dad, Dad, she's here, she's here. And I was on the phone with my mom. She called for, like, one of her 15 minutes she had. It was just, like, one thing after the next here, right? I think the saying is, when it rains, it pours. Right? It, yeah. Is. No, it was it was just ridiculous. At this point, I just was laughing, you know? I mean, we had we were able to open the restaurant because we talked to like a lot of family friends and people who like had never worked in the restaurant before just came to help because we wanted, we needed to keep it open because otherwise like how could we afford anything? Um, anyways, we were able to gather like 2000 signatures in the span of like three or four days. A lot of them were you guys and that was really helpful. Um, I'm really grateful for that. So we just kept bugging the agents just kept like telling them to let her go and people would call them and they'd be like just just like stop calling us like we can't do anything we're like yeah yeah you can you can do something like oh we're only gonna take calls from family members and like oh yeah like I'm her cousin like I'm you know (laughs) you underestimate how big our family is (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we were able to get her out I had to it was I had to fly home again drove to the detention center waited for like eight hours for them to release her it was just it was wild um they only feed them at 4 a.m. 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Um, they get like a maybe like a one inch mattress or probably less than that. No blanket, no pillow. Um, she asked for money in her commissary. It was, I think, $120 that I sent her just for commissary. And she had she was able to get food that she could just like make for make for herself, like in between meals or like after the 4 p.m. meal. That's ridiculous. Um and she, like, taught some of the other women how to, like, make stuff with what was in commissary. She, like, I think she said she made nachos. <laughs> um, and they were, like, all eating her nachos. And she was, like, okay, well, I have to make more now. <laughs> um, I think she got, like, some undergarments to put, like, some, like, long underwear. And, like, the minute that she bought it, someone had already said, hey, can I have that when, you're, when you leave, when you get out? Because she knew she was getting out soon just from what she was hearing on my end. Um, but I mean, the whole time, like my dad was like, Hey, like what's taking so long? Like, why can't you get your mom out? Like, what's wrong? Like, get her out. Like, and my mom was in there hearing other women who hadn't even been able to get a lawyer, hadn't been able to get in touch with their family members. It's so hard to like put money in an account to get them to call you. Like, it's ridiculous. It's very difficult. Imagine the people who had just gotten here, they have nobody, you know? And I think there's this myth that like, oh, like only bad people go to detention centers. Only if you've done something bad do you get put in a detention center. And I think that myth was very pervasive in my family up until this happened. And I was like, yeah, this is what I've been telling you guys. Like, it can happen anytime. I'm not being paranoid. Like, this is why you need to know your rights. Yeah, it was very difficult. I remember like in that moment like I just felt like a lot of adrenaline like those two weeks I was just like going 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 like nothing could stop me but then she got out I went home and I literally lost like a month of my life like I just was in bed for weeks did nothing productive just couldn't even it was just like cloudy like I just couldn't even think straight 
and I was supposed to be studying for finals. Yeah. <laughs> so right. wasn't, that wasn't happening. So, <laughs> you know, the, I, I want to come back to the, the yeah. detention center and, and this myth that only bad people go to detention centers or only bad people go to jail. Um, but I, I, from your perspective, talk to me about the burden that, that, you know, you carry and people like you and other families carry in terms of, you know, this immense responsibility, um, you know, and, and how does that affect, obviously it affects you as a law student, but how does that affect you as a person? How does that affect other people as people? Yeah. So this is primarily what I struggled with first semester of law school as the only person in my family, as the only adult in my family with a social security number, like I have everything under my name. So like the restaurants, the cars, the house, everything's under my name, the debt, everything. And so I, th- I feel like I thought about that so much first semester and I would sit in class and read all these cases and it's just like none of this applies to me. Like it wasn't meant to, you know, this country was built without the knowledge that someone like me would live here or like exist or maybe like with the full intent that there would be people in this like in between situation. I don't even know, but it just, it just hit me that like these laws were not meant to protect me. Like they were literally meant to like seal me out, you know? And so like I'm sitting here like in contracts just thinking, Oh wow. Like this is the type of contract that my parents should not have gone into, you know? And it's just, it's stuff like that, that like, the law like directly affects us and I just grew so cynical you know just thinking that it was just never going to change that it's been like this for so long and it just keeps getting worse so you said something really profound there you said you know you're reading these cases and you the law is not meant to apply to me and the law singles me out what's it like you know yes the age of Trump is is its own conversation but you know i know that you recently worked in tucson and you've been to these detention centers you've been to the border what is your take on the status of how we're treating people in this country right now and secondarily what's the next step how do we improve that and what kinds of things um, are you looking for uh, in this next wave yeah i think what's important to note is that this isn't chapter one this is like chapter 100, you know, and there's like no way that the book's going to end anytime soon of like the terrible things that we've been doing. Um, specifically with like, I mean, I'm not like an expert or anything, but like specifically with what's going on with DACA and like our parents, this, the law that affects us directly is um, era era, like signed in signed into law in 1996 by Bill Clinton and you know just like sitting here thinking that then you know Democrats have like made us into these like little chess parts that they can just like kind of switch around whenever they they need votes the next part of that is right before 9-11 there was a dream act on the senate floor that was literally about to be passed but then 9-11 happened and there was no way that there could be any type of bill helping any foreigner whatsoever. Um, so it's just, it's kind of this thing where it's like been dragged along. And so like going backwards a little bit, um, era era made it so that there was a 10 and three year bar. 
if you were to leave the country, you would be barred from coming back. So that means if you get deported, you can't come back for three or 10 years, depending on the amount of time you were here and had accrued unlawful status. Um, and so that made it impossible for people to be able to go back and forth the way that they had. I mean, my family's original plan had just been here to, we were just gonna stay here for five years. But then we knew that if we were to enter, enter unlawfully again, like there was no way to be able to like come back and go, you know? So like this policy was kind of, these policies have made it so that people are afraid of leaving. And then you don't give them a lawful way to stay. So then you just, you've just got this like whole pool of like second class citizens or what have you um, who can make a life here but can't fully have like a living experience. What so, was the question? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> just following up on that. So, yeah. you know, if this is chapter 100, yeah. you know, chapters 1 through 99 are written. What oh, do you moving want? forward. Yeah. What do you want to see for the next 99 chapters? What's your, yeah. um, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, there are certain things that we would hope for and aspire to. But, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint, what, what's something that you're optimistic about or something that you um, are working for? Yeah, I mean, so I was very optimistic even, like, right before the election and even, I want to say, like, the year after Trump was elected. I was very optimistic that there was going to be legislation introduced and was going to get, like, some pretty good steam, which is why, like, I didn't hesitate when they called me and asked me, when an organization in Alabama called me and asked me to go, like, hunger strike for four days in D.C., just like, yeah, like, of course, like, this is going to happen. Like, I'm, I'm going to put forth, like, every effort that I have to make sure that this happens. I don't know that I would do that today. I don't know that I could sit there and advocate for a, legis- for a piece of legislation that would benefit, un- like, DACA recipients and open the door for things along the border. It, the piece of legislation that I supported back then, like, was not did not have any like wall attachments to it but then later on it was it was added right and so any piece of legislation that benefits some to the detriment of others is very problematic and a lot of people like are okay with that um and i think that's part of why the border crisis is the way that it is because we're we're like oh well we've been here for 20 years like let's completely turn our turn our heads and not pay attention to the new arrivals and who's coming who's coming now I mean, it's always going to happen like this, right? It's politics. Like, it's not, we're not going to get our ideal immigration law that's going to just, like, change everything. But I think where the change really happens is on this, like, personal level where we just, like, grow more accepting of others. And it just kind of, like, works its way up, you know? Like, if we have judges like the judge I worked for this summer who understands the human aspect of her sentencing we have you know attorneys who truly care about their clients and aren't just trying to make a buck off of them immigration clients and you know beyond that as well um if we have people who are like are intelligent enough to understand that their actions truly affect beyond just like their their day like it's i just it's frustrating to me to to even think about like a catch-all like policy that would improve the world you know well absolutely and you know to your point 
um, all of these major movements that we study are grassroots level, right? So you touched on, um, we need people to focus on how can we as individuals improve the lives of other individuals within our immediate, um, our immediate circle and our immediate ability to affect those people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you're also clearly, you're so active as an activist and you've done so many things, whether it was going to the border or going to DC, what's next for you? What's next for us? What can you do? What can we do? You know, whether it's supporting specific organizations or organizing specific events to really emphasize how important this issue is, um, not just to you, but to us as Americans. Yeah. I honestly don't know if I'm going to be able to like continue on with like working in immigration. Um, It was very taxing this summer when I was like, I saw men and women in the clothes they'd been wearing when they tried to cross the border chained together because of Operation Streamline. I saw like high chairs and booster seats like at the CBP offices um, because they had to take them with them when they went to pick up families who had been found at the border. I don't, I don't know that I can, I was with some, some of the interns like in the courtroom where the, the OSL was going, was um, happening. And so like all the interns were like, just like white in their, in their suits. And I'm sitting there like looking around and I'm like, see, these people look like me. Like, that's me, not this. 20 years ago, like, I would have been sitting in a cage. Like, that would have been me, you know? Like, I don't know if I can represent someone and not, like, break down. <laughs> um, and maybe I could. Maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. But, like, at this time, like, I need to, like, preserve my own, like, mental sanity and just, like, make money and help my parents. Yeah. I think something that we talked about in our first episode uh, regarding public interest law is the impact of secondary trauma on lawyers working in any public interest field. And that's something that I think applies even when you are someone who is like a very privileged lawyer who happens to be working with someone where you can't necessarily personally relate to it. There's trauma that happens just from proximity to situations, yeah. never mind the additional impact of feeling like it's something that you relate to in that fashion. Well, and, and not yeah. to keep plugging our own episodes here, but in episode two, <laughs> you know, to your point, Fernando, we talked about how being a lawyer in and of itself is just such a taxing experience. And it then is. from your perspective, you add in that layer of, you know, this could not just could have been me. This is me. These, yeah. you know, this is my family. This is the people that are in my life. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable for you to, um, to be, where you are and to be able to have these kinds of conversations. And obviously we're, we're appreciative. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, not to say that we're ending this conversation, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I would really appreciate sort of like a, as an educational component, what can people like me who, you know, I'm born in this country, I'm, I'm a citizen, but this is an issue that, that impacts me because I live here. And this is an issue that impacts everybody who lives in the United States. What can we do? to be allies, to be advocates, and really lend assistance wherever we can. Right now, specifically, like a lot of people are struggling to pay for their DACA fees. So I think there's, like, to renew their fees. Um, I think there's some organizations, like, in Chicago. I honestly, I haven't gotten plugged in myself in Chicago yet. But I think um, there's some organizations. I know there's one in, like, 
it's called the back of the yards. They're raising, they're raising money right now. Like they're looking for people who can, they're actually doing the Chicago marathon and that's how they raise funds for their, for like DACA renewals and DACA scholarships. Um, well, seeing as I will not be running in the Chicago yeah, marathon, I'll be happy to, to help them out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So it's, it's stuff like that. Like it's, it's just kind of like on a very basic level. Anytime that I see anyone like in my, like back in my Alabama community who needs help raising money for bonds, like I, I just give like five or $10, like whatever I can give, because I remember being there. Like I remember like hoping that someone would you know help me get my mom out so it's just it's stuff like that like it's it's hard I know like right now like finances are not great because we're law students um (laughs) and they probably won't be for another year or two after but I think anytime that we can give of our time to like local community efforts and even I mean like give like five ten fifteen dollars to like a like a local issue I mean, I think I'm like, I'm really mindful about like what I give my money to. And I want to make sure that it's going like directly to a person that's affected. So I just kind of follow like the organizations that I trust are giving the money to the right people. What, which organizations would that be? You know, who, who, from your perspective are the trustworthy authorities uh, on this topic? And not to say, obviously, that these are the only trustworthy authorities, but from your perspective, who are the ones that are really leading the charge on this? Yeah. So again, like the small, like grassroots, like neighborhood organizations. Um, so the organization that helped my mom was the Adelante Alabama Worker Center, and they're connected with Endelon, the National Day Laborers Association organization in California. Um, and then there is, um, there's the Southeast Immigrant Rights Network, they are kind of like the umbrella organization for different like organizations in the Southeast region. They put together a training once a year and those trainings are life changing. They um, like really talk to you about like privilege and like how you should be thinking just like in your day-to-day life, like living in the United States. Um, they do like rapid response work. It's popular education. Anyways, it's like super helpful for the community. Um, and then the other, the organization that I worked with more closely was the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice, which is under the Fair Immigration Reform Movement housed in DC. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, Fernand, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, you know, I'm so grateful. We've been talking about doing this for so long. Um, I'm so grateful that we finally had the opportunity to do this. Um, and, you know, we yeah. as the podvocate are so appreciative for your time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.